Good morning, church family. This morning, we return to the story of Abraham as he waits beneath the trees of Mamre. Last week, we covered chapter 17 of Genesis, where God appeared to Abram and changed his name to Abraham. He promised him once again that Abraham would have a son by his barren wife, Sarah. And we finally learned the name of the son, that the name of the son would be Isaac. The covenant was assured by the sign of circumcision for all of Abraham's household. And yet, once again, as chapter 17 wrapped up, Abraham is left waiting. He's waiting for the son of promise to finally be born. You feel the waiting week after week for the son to finally appear. There's a historical poignancy to this. You see, Abraham's life is likely taking place during the Bronze Age. All around him in all four directions, north, south, east, west, great cities are springing up. Technologies are being discovered. Inventors are inventing new things. Men are having children by the dozens who are founding new cities left and right. The Egyptians by now have begun to build pyramids. They're working bronze. The Babylonians have discovered advanced mathematics and are beginning to understand the secrets of calculus. The Minoans are sailing all over the Mediterranean, trading fish and olive oil. They're figuring out animal husbandry. All these new and exciting things are happening in humanity. And at the very center of all three continents, in the very middle, is the land of Canaan. And there's two, these two trade routes. John mentioned this last week. There's the land route and the sea route, both passing through. And in the center of this area, in the center of these trade routes, is the Oaks of Mamre, where Abraham is waiting on land that isn't even his. Land that he's borrowing, that he's leasing, basically. He's, he's caught in a rental agreement. You might know what that feels like. And he's waiting, and he's, he's growing his herds, he's growing his staff, waiting for his son. In every direction around him, God is blessing the nations of man. They're all springing up. They're all having lots of children, lots of new kingdoms. Everybody else seems to be getting what Abraham was promised in every direction. And yet, they're all worshiping false idols. They're all worshiping pantheons they're coming up with. This is the time when all of the different mythologies were being invented. And yet Abraham, worshiping the true living God, waiting in the very center of all of it on borrowed land, is waiting for God to finally answer and give him not an army of sons, but just a single son of promise. But Abraham is faithful. And so he sits and he waits for God to fulfill his promises. Read with me our text, Genesis 18, 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and mead and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree where they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? 
And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worth, worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. Sarah will, shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. She was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, I want to show you the way that God reassures Abraham and Sarah. And what this teaches us about the character of God, as well as how we should relate to him today. We'll take this passage in two sections. First, I want to look at Abraham's request, and then we will see God's message. So look with me first at Abraham's request, starting here in verse 1. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, I don't think I need to explain what the heat of the day is. We've all experienced quite a lot of that recently, and we're kind of done with the heat of the day. But there is a lot of question and speculation around who these three men are. So I want to give you some, some guidance around what this, could, what this could potentially mean. There are, there are three main possibilities kind of put forward by, by different scholars. The first is that these, these three men simply represent three angels, three angelic beings who are representatives of God. The second is that these three directly coordinate to a full theophany or appearance of God of the Trinity. So this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the third possibility, this is just a Christophany. So it's Jesus and two angels. Now, I can't say definitively which is right. I want to give you some evidence to help you draw your own conclusion and to help you see how I came to my answer in, in looking at this text. The first is that the text uses the covenant name for God, Yahweh. Moses is saying, Abraham looked up, he saw Yahweh, he saw God. And if you've been following along in the last few chapters, he's seen God before, he's heard God before. He knows what God's appearance to him looks like, he knows what God's voice sounds like. Abraham has talked to God before, and he recognizes him immediately. So there's no question in his mind that this is who he is, who he is talking to. Now, it's also worth noting the passage rotates between them speaking as a group and one, one Yahweh speaking out. So we have, we have that in this passage, that the, the Lord is used in the singular tense. The other thing that's worth noting, thirdly, is that they accept worship. Abraham bows down and worships. So if this was just angels, angels would likely not be accepting Abraham worshiping them. We see in many other places, angels do not like to be worshipped. They are worshippers, not, not someone to be worshipped. So it, it's very unlikely that this is just angels for that reason. But look with me, if you would, at uh, 18 verse 33, at the end of this kind of pass at the story. It says, And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And then in 19.1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So it's very likely that this is the Lord and two angels, because that matches up very closely with the verses at the end of this passage. So very likely this is uh, Jesus or God 
uh, appearing before Abraham and then two angels. And the two angels are going to be the ones to go on into Sodom. And then the Lord, Lord, Lord returns to his throne. So that, that seems to be, the, in my mind, the most uh, consistent uh, interpretation of this. But I want to I make a note here that this passage, uh, these are, there's a difference between this and God with us, God being made flesh. Jesus' birth uh, in the New Testament is still wholly unique. Jesus being born of the virgin, taking on the flesh of a man, is different than his appear if it is, is his appearance here in this text or in other passages in the Old Testament. Uh, yes, it seems that Jesus is appearing and even eating in the Old Testament here, uh, appearing to Joshua, God's appearance in the burning bush, all of these appearances in the Old Testament. But they're not God with us, God made flesh. So regardless of which way you want to interpret and take this passage, it still preserves the beauty and the uniqueness of, of Jesus becoming man and taking on the flesh. That's still wholly unique. So I think that's an, an important thing to note as we look at passages like this. Now, all of that said, let's look at the posture of Abraham. Abraham is 99 years old, and he goes running to see God. I don't know if you've ever seen a 99-year-old man go running, but it's kind of a, an interesting mental picture here. Dignified, elder, patriarch Abraham running in his 90, at 99. And he ends his run in a vow, in a quest. So here's Abraham the patriarch, staff of hundreds of men running out to the gate, falling on his knees, bowing before God with a request. And look with me at verses 3 through 5, and let's hear his request. And he said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Abraham bows down. This is in contrast, if you remember, to chapter 15. Abraham, at that time, had a lot of questions. But Abraham doesn't have questions now. He's trusting in the promise of the son with Sarah. He's embraced his new name. He changed all his stationery. And more importantly, he has circumcised himself and the whole camp. Now we see that he wants to wash their feet, to feed them a morsel. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But before we get to Abraham's lunch order, I want us to notice his heart. Abraham has been learning these last few chapters, and he's approaching God with humility. But look, at, look at this request. Do not pass by. Abraham doesn't want to go off with God somewhere else. He doesn't want God to take him off in the desert. He doesn't want God to give him another dream. He does not ask to go with God. He wants God to draw near his camp, his family and his household, and to stay for a moment. He is eagerly awaiting to hear what God has to say, and he wants his wife and his servants to hear it as well. And I think there's something important about that. He wants God to draw near his family. And we can learn a lot from Abraham's posture. When we approach God's word to hear from him, either through private devotions or through a sermon, our heart should be eager to hear from God and to want those around us to hear from God as well. So when you read your Bible, to, do you read just to affirm the decisions that you've already made or to back up what you already know? Or do you approach the scriptures to read and hear and listen to what God has to say for you? Do you read the Bible just for something, do you, to find something true to share with those around you? Or do you just read to find something for yourself? 
These are good questions that we can ask as we approach the Bible. And we also need to ask these questions when it comes to prayer. Do you pray that God would show you what you need to see and hear? Or ask that God bless your plans and ideas? Do you pray for others or just yourself and your own family? Abraham wanted all of his household to draw near to God. Now let's look at Abraham's morsel of bread. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour. Knead and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man and prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now there's some holy humor going on in this passage. You see, Abraham promised them a morsel, right? But then he goes to Sarah and says to make three seas of cakes. Now, three seas is about 80 cups of expensive fine flour. That's a lot of flour for those of you who aren't bakers. That's bags and bags of this stuff. And assuming, let's say we say two cups of flour in every cake, that's about 40 cakes for three people. He's ordering the entire bakery. Let me provide you a morsel. And then he goes to his wife and says, bake everything. Just fill the kitchen with cake. He is ordering a massive amount of cakes. And, and now Abraham has a household staff that's probably between 500 to 1,000 people. So he has the kitchen. They have the kitchen staff to make this order. But it's still a really odd order. He's got three guys that he's ordering an entire bakery's worth of, worth of cakes for them. But that's not all. He also goes out and gets his very best calf, as well as curds, which could be referring to butter, as well as milk. He's personally organizing this meal. And as a brief aside, I think there's a lesson for husbands in this verse. Even in his old age, even at 99 years old, and even with his status as a patriarch with lots of servants, Abraham doesn't leave the meal up to his wife or up to his servants. He gets Sarah involved. He lets her do what she does best. It's very likely she was probably a very good baker. But he pitches in to help as much as he can, and he takes responsibility for what needs to be done. There's just something sweet and loving Oh, this picture of Abraham, 99 years old, running around, still helping with the chores, not demanding of his wife, not demanding of his servants or son to get things done, but he's leading from the front. He's doing so, he's demonstrating what a godly husband looks like. He's, he's helping out with the chores. He's, he's not letting his wife do everything. He's not letting his servants do everything. He's there setting the table. And I, I think that's just a beautiful picture of what, what being a godly husband looks like. He's leading from the front. Abraham would likely have visitors stop by every so often with news from the world or with trade opportunities. So this would be a fairly common occurrence to have people stop by and to feed them a little bit. But he would not be making this much food and this high-quality food. He is making a king's feast. So we have to ask why. Why is Abraham making this much expensive food for only three guys? Well, it's because he wants his whole household to know that something big is about to happen. God has come. And he's going to speak to them. Think about it. This cooking process would take long enough that every single one of his household staff would catch wind, literally, something was cooking. Something was out of the ordinary. And, he and everybody in the staff is going to want to know, who is this royal visitor that warrants this much food, that warrants this much pomp and circumstance? Who is coming here? By making this feast, and let's be honest, this many leftovers, his whole staff is guaranteed to draw near to the tent, to listen into the conversation through the tent walls. And tents are not soundproof. If you know anything about tents, they're not soundproof. 
So all of the staff is drawing near. There's more than enough cakes for everybody. The, the guests are eating. Abraham, is their, their dignified leader, is washing the feet of these men. Something's up. Everybody's leaning in to hear the message. Now keep in mind that most of the household staff is from other places. We've met Egyptians, we've met people from Damascus, and other places as well. And likely, a lot of them don't worship God in the same zeal that Abraham does, if they worship God at all. He has brought the whole world together under his tents. He's bought servants from all different parts of the world, and he's brought them together. And this is his chance to share the good news directly with them. So the meal's finally served. You can picture in your heads the great oak trees and the tent right next to it. Abraham is sitting with them. Sarah is behind the tent. Both are eagerly laden. All the staff are abuzz and curious. The gossip's flowing. Everybody's listening. All right, I'm just going to go sweep over here, you know, just lead the animals over here so they can all listen in. What's going to be said? Who is this guy that Abraham is bowing down to, feeding all this food, washing their feet? And maybe will there be some leftover cake in the break room? <laughs> if you worked, in, worked at any kind of job, you know what I'm talking about. So let's look. What, for point two here, what is God's message for Abraham? Look at verse nine. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Plot twist. This is actually a message for Sarah. If you're taking notes, cross out uh, Abraham and God's message for Abraham and write God's message for Sarah. This is God's message to Sarah specifically. Now, Abraham is Listening in, of course, and the servants are. But God has something special that he wants to say to Sarah. Abraham's on board. God know, But God knows that Sarah is in need of reassurance. So God has come publicly, not just to bring a message to Abraham primarily, but to speak to Sarah, who's standing right behind this tent flap, as was kind of culturally appropriate at the time. So now we must ask, who is Sarah, and why does God want to speak to her so much? All right, so let's step on the other side of the tent flap for a minute and talk about Sarah. We first met Sarai, her original name, back in chapter 11. Her name means princess. She married Abraham, who is the rich family heir. If you remember sermons ago, John talked about how Abraham had a lot of expectations riding on him because he's the, the direct line of Noah, the direct line of Adam. The, the seed of promise is resting on him. And, and Sarah gets to marry this prestigious man who's, who's rich, we learn in chapter 12 that she was incredibly beautiful, that everybody admired her, and that she'd left her family behind when she had traveled. So she's left her friends, her family, everybody she knew in her childhood, and traveled with her husband and his nephew Lot. Chapter 15, we saw that she was still struggling with infertility. Her one big job, her one big goal in life, to have the son of promise, to continue the line for Abraham, and she's been unable to do it. She is battling infertility year after year after year and she's frustrated and she's tired and this came to a boil if you remember in chapter six chapter 16 where she takes desperate measures she gets her her, her friend and her, her servant Hagar and she says have a surrogate through Hagar she gives Hagar to her husband and then Hagar becomes pregnant and has uh, uh, a son and she begins to deeply regret it and, and she begins to abuse Hagar. And, she, and the, whole, the whole staff, all of the, uh, the household, witness the way that she treated Hagar. And it, it's very likely that she's lost a lot of reputation and standing with the rest of the household because they saw how mean and cruel she was and how quickly she turned on her servant Hagar. Now she's old. 
still infertile, and likely not on, on good terms with the household staff. The only thing she wanted in the world was to have a son, and she never did. And to make it worse, Ishmael, Hagar's son, is still in the house. He's still living there, constantly reminding her of her mistake. And yet God remembers her, and he brings the promise directly to her. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. I will surely return to you about this time next year. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The Bible just kind of keeps rubbing it in. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have the pleasure? The promise isn't just for her husband. And the covenant isn't just for the men who received circumcision in chapter 17. God wants Sarah to be in the relationship with him too. The promise is not just for Abraham or about Abraham. It's bigger than him and her. But God has chosen both of them to be part of his story. Sarah will surely have a son, and God's plan will come to pass. But first, God wants Sarah to know this simple message. God sees you. God sees Sarah. She may be on the other side of that tent, but God sees her, and he knows her, and he feels her pain. He sees her pain and her frustration. God knows her broken dreams. He is not just moving her like a pawn on a board to accomplish his purpose. He's not wasting her pain. He has planned and a purpose for her life that is bigger than her life. She says here in this passage, notice, shall I have pleasure? She doesn't respond, shall I have a baby? She responds, shall I have pleasure? Just indicating how much she's hurting. She feels as if all the pleasure has been taken out of her life. All the joy has been taken out of her life. She's waiting to die with her husband. And God says, I see your pain. I see you. I know what you're going through. And I have a plan for that. Your pain has not been wasted. And you are not forgotten by God. And God wants her to know that first. And that to God is so important. It's not just that I'm going to use you and move you around the board, but I want you to know that I see you and I know what you're going through. Last week we saw that the sign of circumcision was to all the males who were from different nations brought together in Abraham's household. And God emphasized that he's going to unite the nations under Abraham from the very beginning. Now God emphasized this vital inclusion of women in this chapter. He's making it very clear that his plans are not just about the men, that he is bringing Sarah and all of women into this. This is an important, an important message here. Sarah doesn't get left out, and that's even after her sin in chapter 16. Even after her failure, even after a life of disappointment and questions, she is still a vital, vital part of God's plan. And yet, God had a good reason for making Abraham and Sarah wait. God is going to do things in a way that Abraham and Sarah cannot control and cannot predict. Remember what we read in Romans 9, 6 through 9. I'll read it again. But it is not as though the word of God had failed. For not all who are descending from Israel belong to Israel. And not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. God's people are the people of the promise, not biological children. Something that Abraham and Sarah cannot affect. They cannot even have biological children. And God is using that to show that God's people are going to be the children of promise. 
And this is stated from the very beginning, according to Romans. Now, part of this is to point out the miraculous birth of Jesus by a virgin. And this story, there's more to it than just paralleling how God is frequently using infertile women in the Old Testament. He frequently has used women who struggle with childbirth and has miraculous births in the Old Testament to point to the miraculous birth that we see in the New Testament. But God is also showing us that in this story of redemption, it will be by his own power. God will answer his promise, but he's going to do it in his own way. God has always planned to save people from every nation. This is why servants from every nation were circumcised before any of the Jewish nation was even born. Before the Jews were even really born, God is circumcising the nations. God's plan has always included you and me. You are not God's backup plan because the, the nation of Israel didn't work out or the Jews didn't quite work out. God is not disappointed by this, but he's excited that this is his original plan, that all the nations be included in the work of redemption. If you are trusting in the promise today, then rest assured that you are part of God's plan and one of God's people. Sarah will have a son, despite her age, despite her infertility, and it's going to prove this point. All of her pain was to prove God's point, that God's people will be from all of the nations, not just from her bloodline and Abraham's bloodline. How does Sarah respond to this? She responds by laughing. Now, it's worth noting that in the chapter 17, verse 17, this was also Abraham's response. He laughed as well, which is why the son's name is Isaac. And we saw in Genesis 14, uh, verse 14, that there were over 300 men born into the household. And that was a few decades before this chapter. So we can assume that Sarah and Abraham have seen literal hundreds of babies born in their tents. They've watched these babies grow up and get married and have more babies. And then those babies grew up and had more babies, servant after servant, having baby shower after baby shower and birthday party after birthday party, all in their tents. Everyone around Sarah, everyone around Abraham is able to have lots and lots and lots of kids and they're all growing up around them and they're struggling. There's, a, there's kind of an interesting parallel here. Abraham looks out to the nations and every nation is being blessed. Sarah looks out to all the servants around her. Everybody's having kids but her. And, it's, and both of them are feeling that pain and that, that questioning of God. Why am I being singled out? Why is it harder for me than everybody else? Yet, God has something that he's doing. You see, God is using this to paint a picture of how he's going to bless the nations. Now, the servants are likely all just waiting for Sarah and Abraham to die so that Ishmael can take over and grow the business. I know if I was alive, if I put myself into Abraham's household, and one day Abraham, old Abraham, comes home and says, I've changed my name from Abram to Abraham, from father of the nations to father of many nations. I'm changing my name. This is my new name now. Everybody gets circumcised. The second I was out of shot of my boss, out of Abraham, the supervisors, I would immediately, my sarcasm would kick in, I'd start immediately roasting this guy. Because this is crazy. This is impossible. Sure, father of many nations is going to have lots of kids. He's 99 years old and hasn't had a single one yet, other than Ishmael, who he doesn't count for some reason. And so to all of the servants, to everybody kind of listening in, this is landing on shocked ears. What did this guy just say? The, this man that Abraham's bowing down to is affirming this crazy promise that Abraham, we thought, just came up with on his own, maybe? And, and yet, remember, too, 
so far, only Abraham has heard the promise from God, and it's been him relaying it the whole time. Only Abraham has been the one kind of coming home every time, saying, guys, guess what? We're going to have a son. It's going to be by my wife, Sarah. It's only been Abraham. And now here comes this mysterious figure and two figures with him, and they're affirming the project. This is the first time Sarah has ever heard somebody other than Abraham tell her that she's going to have a son. And I think, I think that's part of the reason that she's, she's laughing here, because she's, she's actually finally hearing this directly from God and not just through her husband, sure, it's going to happen. And here is the assurance she needs to hear. And I, I think it's significant, too. God isn't telling this to Sarah in a dream off in the desert. He's doing it publicly with all the servants drawing near to listen. He's making it clear, unmissable, unmistakable. This promise is for you. I'm saying it publicly in front of everybody so everybody knows this is true. And Sarah is completely shocked by this. This is everything she probably was like too afraid to even hope for. Here's God affirming her, affirming her pain, affirming what she's struggling with in front of everybody around her who was probably doubting her. And it's just, it's a beautiful way for God to demonstrate that he sees her and he is, he's vindicating her and he's showing that he is going to use her. And I just, I love the way that God is loving Sarah in this passage. You know, we talk, I talked a minute ago about Abraham loving his wife in his old age by helping set up the ta- like setting the table and doing some chores. And here we see God loving Sarah by publicly vindicating her, not just giving her a dream, not just an angelic vision, but publicly vindicating her, saying, no, this promise is real. Your whole staff's going to hear it. There's going to be no denying it. This is God's word. This is God's plan. So she laughs. And how does God respond? Look with me, verses 13 through 15. And the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, and this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What a powerful question to hear directly from God. God who created the universe from the cellular level to the galactic scale, who breathed life into dust, who offered mercy when humanity sinned in the garden. The same God who hears and sees the pain of his people and chooses to act the right and best time. Nothing is too hard for God. And yet, how often do we laugh at God? How often do we decide that something is impossible without even praying, without even asking him? As we consider the passage this morning, I would encourage you to consider this question and ask, what in your life do you think of as too impossible for God to help you with? What are you not even praying about because you're, you're so sure it's impossible that God can't act? And I'd encourage you, nothing is too hard for God. If something feels too hard for God, pray to the God who works impossible truths. Now, this phrase is again repeated later in the scriptures. In Jeremiah 32, 26 through 27, God asks almost this exact question to Jeremiah. He says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Now, this is later in the story, of course. After Israel has sinned greatly against God, they filled the holy city of Jerusalem with idol worship. They were sacrificing children on, on pagan, to pagan gods in the city. 
God promised Jeremiah that the city of Jerusalem would be burned to ashes and destroyed and that the survivors would be taken into captivity as slaves. God was going to punish Israel for their repeated disobedience. But God didn't want Jeremiah to think that even this tragic end is the end of God's story. Even as the Old Testament covenant with Israel was failing, God reminded Jeremiah that his plan is going to go on. He tells Jeremiah to buy property, to document it. They bury it in the ground so it'll survive. As a sign that God is not done with Israel. He was not done with Jerusalem, and he was definitely not done with his plan of redemption. Nothing is too hard for God. Now, this could be hard to cling to when your city is literally being burned to the ground. Or for us, when the bills go up, a recession is threatening to hit, or another heartbreaking story hits the news headlines, a tragedy strikes you or your family or your friends. But do we really believe that nothing is too hard for God in those moments? Because that is God's message for us. That is God's message for his people. When things look hard, when things look dark. Now, I want to I close this morning by unpacking what this really practically means for us. I think there's two applications, and probably more, that I, but I want to give two applications uh, on, on how we can apply this, this, this message from God. The first is this, that Christianity is impossible without God. Not only because it took so many miraculous actions, miracle after miracle over century after century, for everything to fall into place, that Jesus was to be born without sin, to die for our sins on the cross. But even beyond that, the idea that every tribe, every nation, every language will come to know Jesus, it's only going to happen by God's intervention and the Holy Spirit opening the eyes of believers. Christianity without God is impossible. Only God is going to work the salvation of the nations. Our own salvation, too, the salvation of the people we care about, is only by God's mercy. Even more so, the fact that we're all gathered today from different places, different backgrounds, united as a family of faith, it is only possible by the power of God. Our weekly gathering is a reminder of God's power. That's one reason that faithful attendance is so important. We remind each other by gathering that God has acted and intervened in each and every one of our lives. And I think this is so important. And this is why church attendance is important. We remind each other that, we're, that God has acted in our lives and we see that God has acted in the lives of others around us. Now, there are legitimate reasons to miss church for sure. But every time we do, legitimate or not, we are missing the opportunity to see God at work in other people and to remind other people how God has worked in our lives throughout the week. And so it's so important for us to, to gather together and to share with one another Every week, how God has been faithful, week after week, generation after generation. And the second application I would have for you is this. When times get dark and foreboding, as the song said earlier, when we're in the desert, in that dry place, we know what God has promised. And it is so important that we know what blessings God has promised us. Instead of this, this false idea that's floating around out there that we're just supposed to Claim whatever promises come to mind. God hasn't promised us arbitrary things. He hasn't promised us peace and wealth and a career, cheap groceries, uh, a spouse, whatever it is that we're kind of hoping and dreaming. God hasn't just promised us hopes and dreams in this life. So it's important for us to know what God has promised us. Now, also in scriptures, God has not promised anyone in this room uh, as many children as there are stars or as sand. That would be 
as heretical as it is crazy. So, so what do we claim to? What do we cling to? What promises and hope, what impossible things has God given us that we can claim and hold on to? And we recognize that as we think about this, God has promised us trials and tribulations. James 1, 2, he tells us to count it all joy as we fall into suffering. So what do we claim? Let me tell you, God has promised us first forgiveness, salvation, our sins wiped away and paid for, the righteousness of Christ accounted to us. And more so even than that, adoption into God's family. The judge doesn't just clean the slate and account as righteousness. He provides the adoption paperwork already signed to bring us into his family. All assured, all completed, all signed by the work of Christ on the cross. He's promised us the hope of heaven for all eternity. And on this earth, he's given us his Holy Spirit, full access to the armor of God, prayer to the throne of God, and the word of God, the Bible. We are given God's word, forged in heaven for our good. And if that wasn't enough, he encourages us, he pushes us into the family of God. We're not called to walk alone, brothers and sisters. We are called to be united with the family of God, which is the church of God. We are called to be baptized, to publicly be recognized as his people. John talked about this last week. In the Old, in the Old Testament, it was the sign of, sign of circumcision. But in the New Covenant, we have the sign of baptism where we publicly state that we're not just born into the faith, but we have been reborn. We have become joined to the family of God through, through being born again. This is a beautiful way that we publicly recognize that God has done something and given us something beautiful. And when you're tempted to crave the things of the world or things that God hasn't given you yet, even things that are good, like in Sarah's case, craving to have children, that's a good thing to desire. But when God hasn't given it to us yet, look at the things that he's already freely provided and know that the God who has so richly blessed you with all of these wonderful blessings that I've mentioned, the God who's given you all of these things will not withhold anything good for you when the time is right and when you need them. And take comfort from the story of Abraham, that when God does withhold good things from you, he does so to tell his story in amazing ways beyond what you can possibly begin to guess. We can take comfort that God works things out in ways that are better than we can imagine. If you have not laid hold of all that God has given you, if you do not know God savingly this morning, I'd encourage you to talk to me, to talk to your friend or somebody who knows the Lord who can help you to understand the free gift of salvation. We're not called to be good enough for God like the false religions of the world, but instead to trust the completed work of Christ Jesus to receive all of his blessings. If you do know God, I would encourage you, continue to be faithful, to obey, to be quick to bow down as Abraham did, to seek to hear the reassurances of God just like Abraham. And remember that God wants you to be reassured in times of trials. God sees our pain and he wants to draw near to us, to reassure us, so that we know that he sees us and that he is there. Let us pray, and then we'll take a moment of silent reflection. Father, thank you that you see us. Thank you that you come close, that you lean in. That just as you stepped in to speak to Sarah, to vindicate her, to redeem her, to assure her that you assure us through the scriptures, Lord. Help us to cling tightly to your cross, 
that when we hear the beautiful words of Jesus, it is finished. We know it is finished, Lord. Thank you that we can trust you, that we can find hope and peace and joy. Thank you for all of the rich benefits and blessings you've given us. This is Abraham prepared, prepared a rich feast for you all those many years ago. So you have given us a rich feast of your word, of your church, of your spirits, of, your, of hope for heaven, all of these beautiful gifts, Lord, more than we can name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that your riches are before us. I pray that each and every one of us lay hold to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.